Father, we thank you that you hear our confession of sin, acknowledging where we have gone our own way, thought our own way, have done what we wanted to instead of what you have called us to do or asked us to do or encouraged us to do. We're thankful, God, that Jesus cleanses from all unrighteousness. Thankful, Father, that you remove what hinders our fellowship. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us today in the word, knowing that we have done this, desiring, Father, for you to change us, to cause us to think differently, to have different attitudes that manifest in different actions. And may they all be to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So does everybody have a Bible and a pen? And you might not necessarily need the notes from last week, but they are available in the back. We don't have any new notes this week because we didn't finish what we were doing last week. But if you, if you don't have... This sheet right here, it has a copy of 1 Thessalonians 4 through 13 through 5.11. If you don't have that, let me know. We can get that to you. Excellent. Zach, you could help pass some of those out over here. Thanks, man. We are going to be starting in Matthew 13. If you're new, boy, you came at an awkward time. Because we are having to fill in the gaps in some things. We've been dealing with the parables of Jesus. Anybody else need the 1 Thessalonians section? Excellent. Here we are. There we go. I've been dealing with the parables of Jesus. One thing that we've learned is that parables are not easy to interpret. You have to pay attention to everything that Jesus is telling you, and you cannot presume upon the text to be something or to say something that it is not saying. That is what is known as sound hermeneutics. I only got a few giggles. I expected more. Yeah, we should have a class on hermeneutics sometime. Does anybody need a Bible? Bibles? Anybody? These are the big ones. They won't hurt much. We're good? Everybody's good. Everybody has a Bible. I walk this aisle. Everyone has a Bible. I will find out. Okay, just making sure. Good. Is no one in the joke? Raise your hand if you're not in the joking mood today. Okay, good. Good. I could just tell from Jerry's eyes, probably not him. So that's good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So here's some things we need to look at. Matthew 13. What is, if you've been here for the past few weeks, what is the emphasis in Matthew 13? What is Jesus talking about? Well, the end times, kind of, but it's something in particular. He's speaking in parables, but there is an emphasis in his message. It is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, exactly. In fact, if you notice, the kingdom is essentially almost everything that Jesus talked about all the time. It is everything that the Old Testament has been leading up to. Jesus is the king of the promised kingdom of the Old Testament, and he's on the scene now. And the Jews have rejected him, and as a sign of judgment towards them, the kingdom has now been postponed until a later date. The parables... 
Are Jesus' teaching in veiled terms as a sign of judgment against the Jews for rejecting him? But for those who did listen to his message and respond while he ministered in his earthly time, to them has been given greater understanding. The benefit that we have as New Testament church age believers in Christ is that we have from Acts to Revelation that helps us discern what the parables were talking about when Jesus spoke them. This is the idea that we're going to see today of using Scripture to interpret Scripture in order to come to a sound understanding. Why is that? Because right thinking leads to right action. And we cannot live correctly in this life if we do not think correctly about God and His plan for eternity. So in doing this, I want to show you some things real quick. Notice that it says, chapter 13, let's look first at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that is the point. And if you remember in the parable of the soils, what brings fruit? What needs to happen? Oh, you guys are hurting me this morning. It was, no, no, not just that it needs to be sown. There's something in particular. What? You need to understand it. That's the idea. There are four types of soils that are given where the same seed is scattered. The first one, Satan swoops in and takes it away. The second one, you end up with persecution and affliction comes and the person says, oh, no, 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 I, I don't believe in that. And they step away from the message. In the third one, you have where it's the cares of this world, the anxieties of what we presently deal with on the earthly basis, and the love of money that crowds out truth from people so that it doesn't benefit. But it's the last people who are willing to go through the affliction and the persecution and to forsake the things of this world of which you find fruit is born in their life. Some 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. Then Jesus moves into chapter 13. Let's look at it quickly. Verse 24. Jesus presented another parable that, to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So notice the focus is the kingdom of heaven. It is not the gospel. This is so important that you get. The whole idea that God loves the world, God gave His Son, if you believe in Him, you will not perish but have everlasting life, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. That is not what He is teaching here. Instead, He gives a teaching that shows wheat, seeds for wheat that have been sown. And then someone comes in the night and sows tares alongside it. As they grow up side by side, you can't tell the difference. But when they reach maturity, you can recognize which is which. One is a weed. One is profitable for food. And so what Jesus does is he says, wait. Because there's going to be a time of harvest when both are gathered together at the same time. And we are going to take the tares and bind them up and throw them into a furnace to be burned because they're good for nothing. But we're going to gather the wheat into my barn. And this is what I want to start with is the interpretation here. So go all the way down until you come to verse 40 of chapter 13 when he explains the wheat and the tares. If, you've, if you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, come talk to me later or listen to the sermons online to catch up. I apologize. I'm trying to be more respectful of Sunday school time. I can't help it you guys put me in a box. So we'll see. <clears throat> verse 40. 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be, now watch, timing is everything at the end of the age. Now there are two questions you have to ask yourself. Are we talking about at the end of the current age that Jesus is teaching in, which is the age of the law, which the age of the law reaches its culmination at the crucifixion of Christ? Is that what we're talking about? If so, that's a small amount of time from when he's teaching. Or are we talking about the end of the church age when the church will be raptured before the seven-year tribulation? Is that the time that we're talking about? Or are we talking about at the end of the millennial kingdom where Jesus has been ruling and reigning for 1,000 years with those who have been faithful ruling and reigning alongside him as he governs perfectly and administers justice even though there is sin present? Because of the time of harvest that is brought up, both wheat and tares are harvested at the same time, we can only conclude that the age this is speaking of is the millennial age of Christ's reign. Why is that? Because when you get to the end of the church age, the church is raptured, yes? What happens to everybody else? Tim LaHaye told us, right? Left behind! Anybody read those? Are they any good? Okay, I haven't read them. I was too busy reading my Bible. But anyway, just kidding. See, you guys are jokesters this morning. It's good. Good. If not, you need more coffee. That's where we're at. But here's the thing. It lines up. If you just read the text for what it says and don't presume upon it like the kingdom is going on now in some way, if, if the kingdom is going on now, anybody happy with it? I was talking with somebody about this, and the person looked at me and said, I don't understand why they believe that. Wouldn't you think Jesus could have done a better job? I said, exactly. I expect more out of my perfect Savior than what I'm getting right now. If this is the kingdom, and isn't that everything that he promises in his kingdom when he comes, isn't it? He promises so much more. So, what can we conclude? Well, if there's a harvest that happens at the same time, then what we're finding is, is it's actually the remnant, and we're going to be unfolding this so that you guys realize I'm not crazy, and we're going to talk about what it is to, 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 to use Scripture, to interpret Scripture. It is the remnant of mostly Jews, some Gentiles, but mostly Jews in a physical form at the end of the tribulation period who have physically survived that horrible time when the man of lawlessness will reign. And they will be ushered into, bodily, into the kingdom. Satan will be locked away for a thousand years. That'll come next week when we talk about that. And they will be growing up and having children and repopulating the earth from that time. And they don't need Satan to help them sin. Why? Because they have their own flesh nature. See, we don't need Satan to help us sin. We just need to think a lot about ourselves. That's all we need. We're going to see that manifest at that time. And what do you find out? You find out that as the sons of the kingdom are growing up at that time, you've also got a streak of evil that is growing up at the same time. And then when it comes to the culmination of the end of that 1,000 years, they will be sorted out who is who. Now watch what happens here. Verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. Those are known as the reapers in the story. And they will gather out of His kingdom. Stop. Gather out of what? His kingdom, that tells you the time. The kingdom must be going on in order for these angels to gather these people out. Does that make sense? You can't have them gathering out of something that's not happening. 
So notice, we'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, pay attention to that, stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness. Notice, stumbling blocks and lawlessness in the kingdom that the angels are removing out of that time, that 1,000 year reign of Christ at the end. Verse 42, and will throw them in the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They are cast into the lake of fire for eternity. That's their end. Verse 43, but sorry, them, and pay close attention because here's where we're hitting on today. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That means pay attention, y'all. That's what that means. Now notice, they will shine like the sun, the righteous, in the kingdom of their father. That's an odd phrase. What have we been seeing so far? Well, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, word of the kingdom. We've been seeing that. But this idea of the kingdom of their father, it's a different deal. However, it makes complete sense if we have our timing correct. So now, everybody with those things in mind, removing lawlessness and stumbling blocks at the end, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And this all occurs at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Is everybody with me? Yeah, you, you came to church to think today, brother. I don't care, right? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The beautiful thing about 1 Corinthians 15 is it speaks of our future resurrection as saints. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been promised a three-fold salvation and we will talk about this in detail more first corinthians 15 but let me give it to you real quick when you hear the gospel of jesus and you believe it immediately at that moment your spirit is saved you are justified before the father your sin has been removed you are forgiven of it but you also have been given righteousness and you have a complete perfect righteous standing before the father in heaven because he sees you through Christ-colored glasses. Does that make sense? He looks at you and all he can see is righteousness. That doesn't mean that you are righteous. It means that he has declared you righteous. You are justified because he sees you because you are in Christ. In Christ is a good place to be. The second phase of salvation is known as our sanctification. That's derived from the word where we get the same word of, as holy. The fact that we are being set apart in this world, how does a believer get set apart in this world? We read the word, we apply the word. We need to be set apart from the sinful trappings of this world. You need to be sanctified. I need to be sanctified. Or it's perfectly acceptable to say, I need to get saved today. And I'm hoping by the end of my message, I have gotten saved at least six times before I'm done. That sound weird? Yeah, it sounds super weird, doesn't it? Is he lost? No! But I need to be saved, sanctification, not from the penalty of sin, which is death. That's already happened. I need to be saved from the power of sin in my life. Why is that? Because I still have this. I still have the flesh. And the flesh wants me to serve Satan. What? What? I still have the wedding ring. Laverne? I'm going to tell my wife. She knows where you live. 
By the way, did anybody notice something interesting when all the veterans stood up? The person you were scared the most of was Dusty Lee. Did you notice that? You were like, I would take all the rest of them at the same time. Keep her away from me, right? Because I have a, I bet she beat me to the pole. So anyway, I'm telling my wife on you. So <clears throat> you have the flesh. And as you know throughout the week, why do we do 1 John 1, 9? Because we need to confess and be cleansed of the places where the power of sin has gotten our attention and led us astray from what God wanted us to do. Being sanctified is seeing God's word and saying, God, I can't do anything to obey you whatsoever in and of myself. I need you to save me from the power of sin in my life and the spirit live your life through me. It is simply yielding to what God wants instead of doing what we want to do, think ought to happen, what we feel, this should go. Anybody ever sat down to write a letter and you wanted to write a real nasty letter and you didn't? What kept you from that? What kept you from not giving that person a piece of your mind on paper? You know what it was? The conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was trying to save you from the power of sin over your life. He was calling you to submit. He was calling you to Christ's lordship in your life. See, lordship is not a bad thing if you keep it where it's supposed to be. Lordship sanctification, not lordship justification. So hopefully today, we'll all leave here saved people. Don't let that be weird to you. But the last one that deals specifically with the end times is the idea of glorification salvation. That is when your body gets saved. That's when you are saved from the presence of sin. No more sin. That sound good? Yeah. That's a guaranteed future. Now, if God doesn't keep His promises... We all have every reason to have great, deep anxiety right now. But so far, he's batting a 1,000 in eternity. That's a pretty good average. And so we can bank on the fact that he's going to keep it. When we talk about the, our resurrection, we are talking about being raised, and we will be glorified with him. Here's the problem, though. Many people in the church today have dismissed the doctrine of the rapture of the church saying that it's not true, it's a wives' tale, it's just something that some people came up a couple of hundred years ago, and they miss the fact that when they espouse the resurrection of the saints, and they tout that our future resurrection, that's the rapture. It's the exact same event. They can't separate it. They can call it what you want to. But I don't know about you, but when I'm raised and caught up in the air with Jesus, you can call it resurrection, you can call it rapture. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing going on. What's amazing about 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul gives us a concise timeline of how the end of the world is going to unfold. And I think this is one of the most important things we could ever see. Why? Because we're not having to tackle the whole book of Revelation in one setting. We can just see it here in five or six verses. So if it would, everybody pay attention with me. 1 Corinthians 15. Because remember, the thing we're getting at is what is this whole idea of the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's very interesting terminology. How does that work out in the scriptures? Look at chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Stop. Has that happened? It has happened. Okay? The first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits is an Old Testament concept. It is the idea that whenever growth, 
from a crop has been put forward and they would praise God for the growth, they would take a small portion of it and they would bring it over to the temple and they would offer it to God as a thank you offering to him. And what it did by them submitting themselves in that way is is it was saying, we are thanking you with this first portion, but we understand because of this first portion, there is much, much more to come afterwards. Does that make sense? So it's like the idea of they're pulling aside the tenth and they're offering it. They're, they're, they're praising God with it. They're giving him the first sections of what he's provided for them to grow. The first fruits is the idea. Uh, and if you look at your notes, you've got all kinds of stuff on this, okay? Notice, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. What does the word asleep mean? It's not what you do when you get here at 9 o'clock. What does it mean asleep? Dead. If you're looking at it and you're reading, the context will let you know whether we're talking about somebody that is cashed out, right? Or somebody who is dead, who has passed away. But notice how they're described. Those who are asleep. He is the first fruits. Christ is the first fruits of those who have passed away. Okay? How in the world does that relate? Let's keep reading. Verse 21. For, here's he's going to explain it for you. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And then he explains that. For as in Adam, all die. Okay? But notice the next one. So also in Christ, now watch that, in Christ, all will be made alive. What needs to happen in order for you to be made alive? Where do you need to be? In Christ. You have got to be in Christ. Now, even the dead, those who don't know Jesus, are going to be resurrected, and that's a completely separate judgment they're going to deal with, okay? We're going to talk more about that next week, God willing, if we get there. If not, the next week. Stay tuned. We're going to find it, right? We're going to get there. But this idea right here, those who have fallen asleep, we know the basic principle. Notice it's real cut and dry. In Adam, everybody dies. Everybody starts out in Adam. In Christ, you are made alive. We're not just given life. We're given life abundantly. The life that we're given is eternal life. And that eternal life doesn't just stretch in the future. It is a life that has always existed amongst the Trinity in eternity past as well. Does that make sense? It is an abundant life. Who's asleep? This is exciting stuff. You should be excited about this. I'm talking about you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. So now, verse 23. Now watch this, but each in his own order. Stop. There's a sequence of events of how this resurrection, this being made alive is going to happen. Now notice, he's not talking about the whole idea of you believed in Jesus, forgiveness of sins, you've now been given righteousness. He's not talking about the whole idea of being saved from the power of sin in your life and being set apart from sin as you live your daily life. He's talking about going to heaven when you die and seeing the culmination of this great promise. Now watch what he says here, verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Is that who Christ is? We know that from verse 20, right? So here's what I did in my Bible in order to help me because there's a little timeline here. Right above Christ's name, I put first. I just put one little ST. That's what I put and I circled it. Because this is the first thing to happen. Now, here's a question. Has Christ raised from the dead? Yes, he has. Didn't he appear to his disciples? 
Yes, he did, for 40 days. And during that 40 days, the main thing he taught him about was the kingdom. Then he ascended, and he sent him out to preach the gospel. Right? Yes, we're good? So this is an event that these people at this time would have looked back on and said, okay, we get it. He is a first offering of a greater abundance of resurrection from life that is going to happen later. Who is the much more later? That's you and me. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, it's going to happen to you and me. Now watch what it says here. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then watch the language. After that, after Christ is raised, okay? After that, notice what it says. Those who are Christ's at his coming. Who's that? Us. Now notice, at his what? At his coming. Now, we got a problem here. Are we talking about the rapture? Are we talking about the second coming of Christ when he returns and destroys all opposition and sets up his kingdom? Which coming are we talking about? So here's what we do. We ask ourselves, is there anywhere else in Scripture that's going to help make this clear? Pull out your papers. That's the whole reason why I printed this out for you. Does anybody need one of these? Anybody? Anybody? You don't want to be lost. All your friends are doing it. Okay. Where's it at? You got it? Anybody else? Peer pressure, peer pressure. Okay, great. Iris, I love you so much, I ain't even going to hold it against you. There you go. Sheila! Okay, I love you too. So here, pass this on down. That's good. That's good. Anybody else? Whoa! Where did you Did you guys come in late? You guys are making Zach work. <laughs> I knew we hired him for something. That's good. All right. Let's get man. <clears throat> this right here is an incredible portion of Scripture. It is 1 Thessalonians, and notice that I've already taken to it with the pen, right? Always have your pen out, man, always. That's the whole reason why I made it spaced out like that. Always take your pen. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 5.11 unfolds the rapture of the church. And so watch what happens here. Follow along with me. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. That word uninformed in some translations is also translated ignorant. Now this is your New American Standard version that I've printed out for you. So it's not anything different from what's going to be in your Bible. But it's always good to mark things here before you put them in your Bible. Because trust me, I am the king of whiteout in my Bible. So notice, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Pause. Saved or unsaved? They are saved people. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now watch. About those who are asleep. Stop. What did we say asleep was? It's dead. So they've passed away. And Paul is writing to them. Obviously, he got some sort of correspondence from them. Oh my gosh, Paul. What happens about these people who believed in Christ and we were living our lives in anticipation of his return and they died before he came back? What do we do about that? How do we handle that? How does your gospel make sense when you taught us that he would return for us and now we've got people that are dying? Explain yourself. Can you understand there's probably some, some frustration and anxiety here? The hope was supposed to be greater than this, Paul. What has happened here? We're a little disappointed. So he writes back to inform them. Notice he says, about those who have fallen asleep, here's the reason. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have, uh-oh, no hope. Stop for a second. Everybody see the sign we changed? 
with Jesus, hope is not wishful thinking. It is a certainty. It is not, I hope this happens. No, it is, my hope is secured in Christ. It's going to take place. I'm waiting for that hope. That's the idea. It is certain. And why is it so certain? Why is it locked up by the promises of the Word of God? Here's the reason why. is because it's to fuel our behinds from being lazy. It is so that every one of us would proposition our families, our lives, everything that we undertake in light of His return. Why? Because whoever hears the Word of the kingdom and understands it is the one who's going to bear much fruit. That's the reason why. Are we living in light of His return? It's going to happen. So watch this. He's going to explain this because he doesn't want us to grieve as Christians who don't have hope like the rest of the world who don't have Christ. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, stop, do you believe that? You do. Does everybody see the pronoun here, the personal pronoun, we? Everybody see that? Who's that? that? That's not just Christians, that's Paul and us. Does Paul believe this? He does. So notice that he's putting himself as the author of this in the same boat with believers in Christ. Everybody see that? He's saying this is a common hope we all have. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, didn't we just see that in 1 Corinthians 15? Yes. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, in Christ. What does asleep mean? Dead. Just as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, so also when he comes back, he's going to have those who have fallen asleep. That's their destiny. So how does that work, Paul? He's going to show us. Verse 15, For this we say to you by a word of the Lord, that we, Paul included, right, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now stop. This is packed full of all kinds of sweetness. Okay? Watch this. Notice what he says. We who are what? Alive and remain. Is he talking about physically speaking? We're still here on earth. Some of our brothers and sisters have passed away. We're still here. Let me ask you a question. Does this show you that Paul anticipated for the rapture to happen in his time? There's nothing else left to happen. Even in Paul's time, there was nothing else left to happen for this event to take place in the blink of an eye. Paul anticipated it to the end of his life. Do you think that Paul lived his life in anticipation of the kingdom? Man, it's an excellent model, isn't it? So watch this. Who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Stop. What does he consider to be the coming of the Lord? The rapture, doesn't he? That's what he's speaking about. We're, we are alive on this earth and we remain until a point. What is that point? When he comes. What's he going to do when he comes? He's going to gather us up. Watch how this happens. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It means that the dead aren't going to be left behind as believers in Christ. Look what he says, verse 16. For, here's the explanation. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, now watch this, and the dead in Christ will rise, what? First. They're going to be caught up first. Now stop. I've noticed that everybody's a big fan of cremation here. Not so where I'm from. We bury our people whole. 
We're trying to make sure that Jesus doesn't have as much work to do with them whenever he does this. Right? You guys are making him look for pieces and good grief. You guys are causing Jesus a lot of trouble. So, <clears throat> But no, seriously. Imagine what's going to happen at that moment. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be an archangel that's going to pronounce something. And there's going to be a trumpet of God that sounds. And when that happens, the dead... All those molecules at one time together. All of those graves popping open together. you never seen six feet of dirt shoot so high in the air. Coming out of those things. Anybody been to a funeral recently? Isn't it amazing how much care they put into keeping people from grave robbers? But that little lock ain't going to stop Jesus Christ. He don't even have to do anything. He's just got to shout. Gone. Open. Received into glory at that moment. It's going to happen. I don't think that could happen. Read Matthew's Gospel. When Jesus died, it is finished. And He gave up willingly His Spirit. It said that graves were open and the dead walked around. That didn't really happen. Were you there? Because that's the eyewitness account that we have written down that has been unrefuted for 2,000 years now. Are you sure? If it happened like that, I'd tell you what, it sets for a grander stage in the future of what's going to happen. The dead will come up first. But notice what happens next. Verse 17, Then we, who's that? And? And Paul. Notice Paul's in there with us, man. Don't, Don't put Paul in the outer darkness. He's in there with us. Then we who are alive and remain, same terms, right? Same terms he showed you before. Will be caught up together. This word, you've probably heard it. I guarantee you, Pastor Steve is hammering it home. Harpazo. And what does it mean? Here's a definition. To be seized is the idea. To carry off by force. Here's the definition I really liked. To claim for oneself eagerly. Why is this? Because everything that Jesus ever promised us in salvation meets its culmination in this point. The dead shoot up, are carried up into the sky. We will be captured off of this earth. Notice what it says. We will be caught up together with them, those who had fallen asleep in Christ and were raised first, in the where? Clouds. Pause. This is what separates the rapture from the second coming. When we are called up in the rapture, we meet Jesus in the clouds. He doesn't come any further from that. He doesn't need to. But when he comes back to settle accounts with everybody and establish his kingdom, the book of Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives and the earth splits. There's a big difference between Jesus' feet touching the ground and the idea of calling us up to meet him at a place northwards. Right? So notice, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the beautiful part about it. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Always. You will always be with the Lord. He will never go anywhere without us. We become His entourage. Lucky Him, right? I tell you what, it may not seem like it now. Don't say groupies. You had to go there, didn't you? (laughs) 
Obviously, Sue's never been on tour. I have. Sue, repent. Um, in the class, I can't even function now. That's terrible. All right. So notice, so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18. And I'm about out of time, but verse 18, we're going to finish the rest of this paper. We'll come back. We'll pick up in, in 1 Corinthians 15 next week. But look what it says in 18. Therefore, and we ask a question because we're all good interpreters of the Bible. What's that therefore? Because of this wondrous, glorious, instantaneous gathering of ourselves up to meet our Savior in the air, seeing him face to face, being with him at all times. Comfort one another with these words. Now remember, the context is Christians who have died. Is there a lot of comfort that's needed at funerals? Comfort one another with these words. Do you do that? When you attend a funeral and you're putting your arm around somebody, do you talk to them about the rapture? That seems silly. Why would I want to bring it up at that time? Because it's comforting! Because this world isn't the end. Because it wasn't just pay your taxes and die. Like so many people have a wonderful outlook on life. We are promised so much more. So notice what he says. Chapter 5, 1. Now as the times and the epochs, brethren, saved, right? Same people. You have no need of anything to be written to you. And you know what? That makes me so mad. Because Paul taught them it's something at some point, and we weren't there, and nobody recorded it and put it on the internet for us. But he's like, I've already talked to you guys about this. Well, Paul, I want to know. What is it? Tell me. Tell me. And then Paul would probably say, study your Bible more. But anyway, moving on. Verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. What does that mean? You're not going to know it when it comes. There is nothing that gives us a, mm, it's close, for the rapture. You don't know. It could be now. I was hoping it was last week before that football game. <laughs> the trials and tribulations that we suffer through. Maybe today, Lord. Maybe today. So notice, it'll come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, stop. Here's a good thing. Is the world advocating for peace and safety today? Why can't we all just get together and love one another and join arms and sing Kumbaya and have a coconut smile? How come that can't work out? Is that any different from this message right here? No. While they're all saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. You ladies remember the labor pains? Was it sudden? Right? That'll make you say some Greek and Hebrew. So verse 4. But you, brethren, us, we're not in darkness. That the day would overtake us like a thief. In other words, because Paul has told us about it, there is no reason for us to act like people who live in darkness. One of the greatest witnesses against Jesus Christ is the laxity of Christian living and striving for holiness in the church. By His grace, we've been getting everything that we need in order to be successful in that. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Why do we act like morons sometimes? 
Why is it that we act in such a way like we don't know him? He's given us 66 books. He's given us a hermeneutics class to understand the 66 books. That's the whole goal is to apply the scriptures and live like no one else lives so it brings maximum glory to his name. Why? Because he's going to come like a thief in the night and you don't know when it's going to happen. But when it does, what you don't want to be done is finding yourselves with your hand in the cookie jar. That's where you don't want to be found. And we're going to talk about more in three or four weeks about why that's the case. Notice it says, verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. That's not who we are. So then, let us not sleep. Now notice in this context, it doesn't mean die. It doesn't mean pass away. It means don't live your life in a slumber, is the idea. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we, Paul included, are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice that's not the, I hope I go to heaven when I die. It's the hope of when this happens. It is the rapture of the church. And notice verse 9. Here it is. Circle this verse. Know this verse. Because this is what's going to help you decipher everything going on in 1 Corinthians 15 next week. For God has not destined us to what? That's not God's destiny for you. You and I, as believers in Christ, have been saved from the wrath to come. And what wrath is he talking about? Well, in times, when do you know is going to be a terrible time? The tribulation period. You have not been destined for the seven years of tribulation. Look what it says instead. But for obtaining salvation. Paul, what salvation are you talking about? He's talking about glorification salvation. The saving of our bodies, the saving us from the presence of sin in our lives anymore. The gathering up, caught up together to be with him always in the air. But, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that, here's the reason why, and, and notice this. This is a very interesting argument that he makes. So that, whether we are awake or asleep, stop. Whether we're what? Awake. What does he mean by awake? Some of you aren't awake this morning. Is that what that means? What? Alive. But not just alive. What's he been challenging them? It's not just somebody, I'm breathing right now. He's talking to believers. And he's saying, awake or asleep. What did he use for sleep earlier? What was that? No, no. Well, it was death at the beginning, but what was it in verse 6? Let us not what? No, let's not slumber. Let us not live this life in a worldly haze like other people do. Instead, let us be alert and sober. Live your life in expectation of his sudden return. So notice this, because this is the demonstration of God's grace like I've never seen before. Notice what he says in verse 10. Who died for us, here's the reason, whether we are awake, living, alert, and sober, and in light of his return, or asleep, whether we're a Christian who is slumbering through this life, we will live together with Him. It doesn't change. It will matter what your eternal life looks like when you get there, whether you were living alert or asleep. That's all based on rewards, and we're going to talk about that later. But notice, 
regardless if you are being an expectant, obedient Christian, or whether you are being an unexpecting, disobedient Christian, because of what Christ has done, everybody's raptured at the same time. He doesn't leave the naughty Christians behind. He takes you too. He probably takes the cookie jar with your hand in it too. This is a good one to use on teenagers, right? Use this on teenagers? We'll talk about it later. Okay. Verse 11. Look at it again. Therefore, because of this, here it is, guys. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing. Everything about the return of Jesus, everything about living in light of His coming, everything about encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to not succumb to stupid sins to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us and to run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross despised the shame and where is he at right now seated at the right hand of the father in heaven he finished the race successfully He is the prototype, not just for our resurrection, but for how we live this life faithfully. Why? Because when the the shout goes out and the trumpet is blown, and I don't even know what an archangel sounds like, but I hope it's better than when I listen to Tom. (laughs) But when that archangel shouts and all of a sudden, we're gone. And if I recall correctly in the movie, clothes are left behind, personal items are left behind, Good grief, we got enough material left behind for these lost people on the seven years of tribulation to get saved, don't we? But in a moment, you're going to be there. You're going to see Him face to face. Were you ready? Were you ready to meet Him? Notice, in light of the rapture, you don't have to die to be there. It's not like, well, I know I'm going downhill and so now's the time to get right. No. It could be just the fact that you blinked and you were there. That's how quick it's going to be. So we encourage one another with these words. Why? Because as far as I'm concerned, as the, as the pastor here at this church, I don't want any of you to be found with your hands in the jar. Our people knew it. Our people believed it. We championed one another and encouraged one another. And we orchestrated everything in our existence with the idea that when Jesus comes back, we want to be found before Him approved, pure, righteous, holy, blameless, set apart like nothing else. I want Jesus to be amazed at us when He sees us. I know it can happen, Matthew chapter 8. A centurion believes what Jesus said about something rather than needing evidence. It says, and Jesus was astonished. This guy astonished God. It can happen. And I want that so badly for every one of you and for myself. I need it too. Am I living in light of His return? Because when it happens, we're going to wish that whatever else we had put before Him had never been there. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for something as 
profound is the rapture of the church being caught up, being removed from this earth and how this plays into your plan for the end. Give us wisdom, Father, in dealing with this concept. Help us to not be foolish and dismiss it. Help us to ask the hard questions and to look at where we are in life and to realize that you have great joy set before us and it is freely given because of your grace. But will we receive it? And sadly, not everybody will. So Father, in our hearts right now, this needs to be a day of difference. This needs to be a day of decision. This needs to be a day of laying down silly sins, taking the necessary measures to stop living for this life, but to live in light of the life to come. Please move upon our hearts now. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.